this morning we uh, are in John 14. We're going to cover verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> John chapter 14. And uh, just five, six short verses here, 12 through 17. The lesson that uh, Dr. Sproul titled this, Another Helper. Let me read these uh, verses for us. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word uh, this morning, Father, we thank you for the gift that we have, the printed word that we have before us today. We thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit superintending and writing in these scriptures. And we just pray this morning as we look into these verses, uh, Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning. And Father, we ask that you will guide us uh, as we uh, seek to know you better, to love you better and serve you better in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as by way of uh, introduction to this chapter, uh, Dr. Sproul tells a story from his past and uh, learned a little bit about him. Uh, but uh, he says that he became a Christian in, the se- in September of 1957 was when he became a Christian. Um, he said at the time he had a girlfriend whom he had been going steady. Remember, remember that phrase, going steady. They still use that. Is the kids still. Use, I guess I should ask my daughter. They don't use that anymore. Is that not a thing? They talking to them. Is that what it is? I'm talking to them. But, but going steady was like an exclusive relationship, right? That's more than just talking to, right? But is that what they say? Is that what the kids say now? Just talking to someone? That's a phone <laughs> call. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's, let's be clear here, right? Uh, going, going steady. I don't know. I'll have to ask Emma Grace and see what uh, she what she says about that phrase. Anyway, uh, I hadn't heard that one in a while. But anyway, he, he had a girlfriend he'd been going steady with uh, since 1952. So for five years, they had been going steady. And she, at this point, he's in college, and she uh, attended a different college. And so they communicate, or he communicated to her by letter, and he sent her a letter every day. Writing a letter every day he sent. He sent uh, that's how he communicated with her. And again, that's... That's impressive. Uh, that takes a lot of work, right? And I don't know, if, you know, he says a letter. He didn't say a note. Um, so there's communication every day. I mean, I was doing good in college to send an email every day. I didn't even make it every day, I don't think. Um, but anyway, so here we go. So that's how they uh, communicated. <clears throat> and he noted that after he was converted... Uh, that his letters became filled with spiritual matters. He would write about things of his newfound salvation. Uh, 
And unfortunately at the time, she was not a believer. So, he's, in his words, she thought I'd just kind of gone mad, you know, and, and lost my mind. I'm off at college and I've got some newfound faith and I'm gone mad. And, and he says some serious tension developed in the relationship. That was, this was a big deal. He was talking about these spiritual matters and she either didn't have any, she didn't know anything about this and it just was causing some serious uh, tension. So he says in the winter of 1958, he says, I spent hours and hours on my knees praying for her conversion. Hours and hours on my knees praying that she would be converted. He says later on she decided to go home for a weekend visit and we arranged for her uh, to come to his college, his college campus for a day uh, and to, to visit and then he would drive her home the next morning, take her own home. The... Uh, he says, the day that she was scheduled to arrive, he says, I spent the entire morning on my knees praying. Praying that she would be converted, that she would become a believer. I uh, said, And so when she arrived, they went to a Bible study. A Bible study that he attended regularly. And again, in his, by his account, in the middle of the Bible study, these are his words. The ministry of Christ and the significance of the cross were presented to her in such a way that caused the scales to fall from her eyes. And she came to a saving faith of Christ in Christ. The next day, Vesta, y'all know Dr. Sproul's wife's name? Vesta, my wife-to-be, told me that uh, she had woke up every hour during that night asking herself, is it still there? Is it still there? What's it? She's talking about He, right? The Spirit. Do I still have it? Uh, uh, and so it was almost like waking up from a dream. And but, but being assured that she still did have the Spirit in her life, she fell back asleep. And so she said the next day, with great excitement, R.C., now I know who the Holy Spirit is. Now his, his, uh, that's an, isn't that an amazing testimony? I mean, because you think of, of these two and what, have you ever, anybody ever meet his wife? Uh, if you ever been to a Ligonier conference in Orlando, uh, I know that we've only been one time, but uh, they made a habit of walking around during breaks and greeting people, he and, and his wife. Um, even in their older years, and they would greet people, very just humble, hospitable people, sweet, sweet people. Anyway, uh, so she she says, R.C., I now know what the Holy Spirit, or who the Holy Spirit is, excuse me. He says, he made the point, he says, you know, we've been raised in the same church. They've been dating, you know, they were dating for five years. They had gone to the same church. They had heard the same liturgy, Sunday in and Sunday out. And we hear those words, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They have heard these things every Sunday, but she had no idea about the person and work of the Holy Spirit until she was converted under his power. Now, he shares this story because as we move forward in John's gospel, we're going to learn a lot more about the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John chapters 14 through 17 have the longest discourse anywhere in Scripture about the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. 
And so our goal is to learn more, to gain a deeper understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, why God sent him to minister among us and what he does. What is his ministry like? As the as we enter this discourse here in uh, in this chapter, again, Sproul made a, he says, you know, we have a curious statement from Jesus here in verse 12. And it admittedly said, this is the one I've struggled with. I've struggled with this statement from Jesus. He says, you know, I think I know what it means, but I'm not 100% sure. That's, that's Dr. Sproul's own words. And so here's this statement as we get into this discourse about the Holy Spirit. So verse 12. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Now, again, uh, by way of kind of uh, explaining why he he thinks he understands, but not 100% sure, you know, he says, you know, I can hardly imagine. And when you hear those verses, right, you probably have a similar thought in your mind. I can hardly imagine um, that you or, or I uh, would ever be capable of doing the works of Jesus, the, the miracles that he did. Um, it, it would be unthinkable that we could ever do greater works than he did uh, while he was on earth. But what the Lord is getting at here uh, is something that uh, is extremely important for the church to understand. When, and we know this because we've studied this, when, when Jesus performed uh, the miracles uh, during his earthly ministry, under whose power did he do these? He's under the, he, he did it, okay, he did so because he was endowed by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way. Right? And the Spirit, and we know that the Spirit came upon him in, the, in a visible sense, in a real sense, at his baptism. Now, also, when you think about this this ministry, the way the Holy Spirit works through uh, people uh, in history, we can look back to the Old Testament, right? We can look back at the life of Moses, can't we? Uh, the same was true with Moses. Moses. Moses did many mighty things all through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was upon him to do those works. Now, um, we know that this, how do we know this? Well, let's look back in uh, the Old Testament. We know that the Spirit was working in these miracles because of the account we find in Numbers 11. And you'll remember this. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to give a, a quick uh, review of Numbers 11. But you remember this was the point where uh, Moses was becoming extremely overwhelmed at the burden of ministry and taking care and, and of uh, of the Israelites uh, he was he was handling everything himself. You remember this time when he was he was really struggled. I mean, stressed out. You know, just imagine all the pressure. You know, he's extremely burdened. And so, what did God tell him to do? God tell him you gotta gotta get some help, right? Uh, so he he commanded him to bring in uh, seventy elders of these seventy elders of Israel to the tabernacle. And he said, "What?" And what did God say? "I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same spirit upon." them what was god was gonna he's gonna spread the workout right moses is trying to do it all himself it's too much we're gonna spread the workout and so what god what when when god did that we know what happened right the 70 elders were anointed they were empowered by god for ministry 
So we see that the spirit who was upon Moses was what? It was just, it was just um, distributed, right? Distributed, excuse me. Distributed to the elders. You remember that in that same account too. You remember that at the time when this happened, right? When God, when he had the 70 elders, remember there were, there were, there were two of the 70 who were not with them. Okay. Where were they? They were, they had remained uh, in the camp. We're not really told why. It's an unexplained reason why they weren't there. Uh, but what happened when, when God laid uh, this, his spirit on the others, these all, the two were also anointed. Even though they weren't present, they were also anointed. And what happened? They began to prophesy in the camp. Remember? And uh, you, re- you remember uh, Joshua. He witnessed this, right? Do you remember Joshua's response, right? He, he, was, he was jealous to protect uh, Moses' authority, and so he, he complained about it, right? And he says what? He says, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. He's telling them, stop. They're not supposed to be doing this. And verse 28, what was, what was Moses' answer? He says, are you zealous for my sake? And what was Moses? He says, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. What was, you hear the, from the lips of Moses, right? It was, at that, at that time, it was, I guess you could say, maybe a wish from Moses. Maybe at best, it was a prayer, right? He was, the Lord would do this for all of God's people instead of just 70. Well, this, this wish of Moses or this prayer, if you want to call it that, uh, Later, in the Old Testament book of Joel, that Joel, that wish became a prophecy. If you remember the words of, of, of Joel, the prophet, it says, and this is in Joel 2, verses 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In other words, what is, so now this, you got this request, this prayer, this wish from Moses, it's now becomes prophecy, the words of God himself. In other words, God was saying that he's going to anoint the whole church. That's what God was saying back in joy. I'm going to anoint the whole church. All believers will have my spirit upon them. Now, we know when this prophecy came true, right? Acts 2, Pentecost, right? That's the prophecy. It happened, okay? It happened in a very real way. And we've studied through Acts. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, time to think about what God was doing there. Well, so back to what Jesus is saying here and his words here. Uh, what Because of all these things, all these things are factors, right? And what Jesus is saying and why he's here and he's talking about the Spirit. So what we believe is going on here back in John is that Jesus is preparing his disciples uh, to understand what's about to take place very soon. There's going to be an amazing event it's going to happen very soon, and I want you to understand it, okay? Because it's something, you know, in God's mind, and Jesus' mind, this has been the plan. And it's about to come to uh, fruition, the giving of the Holy Spirit. We, we, know that, we know that God would take the Spirit that was on Jesus, okay, at this time, by, by Christ's own request, and then He would give it to all who loved Him. The, the same power that was invested in Christ would be invested in the church. That's the plan. That's God's plan, right? Now, 
because this is in the context, right, of this 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 verse. Let's, let's reread the verse so we just make sure we're on the same page. This is verse twelve. Most assuredly, I say to you, who believes in me, the works that I will do, he will do also, and greater the works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now that's what we're, we're given the 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 background here for what's really uh, what Jesus is is trying to communicate, because it's more than just the works that he has done, because what. R.C. believes, uh, other commentators would believe, is that he didn't, we don't, we don't think that Jesus meant that all of us and the disciples too would do miracles for all ages. Okay? What Jesus' intention here is that the church would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to perform works that go far beyond the nation of Israel. Okay, that, that the amazing ministry so far has been contained to a geographical area, hasn't it? It's a people group. It's, it's in Jerusalem. It's in Judea. But when God gives the Holy Spirit, where is that going to be done? Throughout the whole world. It's going to start here, but it's going to spread. And it's going to go out through the whole world. And that's the sense when Jesus said, you're going to do greater things than me. That's what he's talking about. Greater in terms of scope. Right, just amazing the scope, the expanse, okay, that was going to happen at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because right now, Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit. He's one person. He's contained to an area. He can't be Jesus, the man. Right, the physical man can't be everywhere. He can't. That's that's not possible. But what's going to happen is these greater works are going to expand, and this work is going to happen, and so. As a result of the giving of the Holy Spirit, we know that the church has been, we know this, has been empowered for missionary work and ministry work around the globe. It has expanded. And so in that sense, it is much greater. The church will be gospel witnesses throughout the whole world and uh, and they'll do that through the power of the indwelling of, of the Holy Spirit. And so the focus really, when you read that verse, we're thinking the physical things that he did, uh, but the focus is more spiritual rather than the physical miracles. That's Jesus's point here. You're going to do greater things than I. Now, when you think about church history for a moment, um, Jesus is saying that the church is going to do amazing things to the power of the Spirit. Sometimes we can we look back and and um, we hear about. I haven't really heard about it. I know I've, I've read about them. But uh, people will complain about church history and all the bad things that have happened under uh, the church age. Okay, we can talk. They doctors will call them black eyes in church history. Uh, some will say the Crusades. What about that? That's terrible. The church just—it's crazy what they did. The Crusades, the the religious uh, persecution that has been uh, exhibited on behalf of the church, uh, bigotry in the church, and they. They can point to all these black eyes, right, in church uh, history. But if we look, if we look at uh, the history in the West, we see many great things. Uh, many great things about church history. Uh, in fact, uh, the the primary push for the um, abolition of slavery came from the Christian Church. Okay, that was this is a human rights, a basic human rights issue, and so you see the Christian Church uh, forming uh, for this push of uh, of abolition of slavery. Uh, higher education. Where'd that start? Who started higher education in the United States and the West? The church did. 
the first colleges of higher education were seminaries started by churches. I mean, that's, that's the history of higher education in our country. It's the, uh, the universities, a lot of them were started uh, by churches. What about modern hospitals? Who started those? The church. The church started the modern hospital age. Um, so you see many good things coming out uh, of the, the church age. The what we know about the Spirit and its work in the church, because we're again we're talking, we're still on the same verse, verse twelve, right? About these greater things. That's what we're still talking about. The greater things that you will do. And he's talking to disciples. He's talking to the church. But these greater things are as a result of the Spirit's work. The Spirit's caused the church to move in many marvelous and miraculous ways. And by extension, the church is extending the works of Jesus. Okay, the amazing miracles that Jesus did, the healing, the, the church is now extending those works. The benefits of Jesus are now being extended to the world and uh, his ministry to the ends of the earth. All right, that is the part of the mission of the church. And so what Jesus was doing here when he's talking to his disciples, he's trying to prepare them for this. That ministry as you know it is about to change. I'm about to leave. Things are going to change. The ministry is going to expand and um, it's about to get really exciting. And so he's preparing them for this when he speaks these words in the upper room. Now note that he said, greater works than these he will do. And then he kind of qualified or he added something. He says, because I go to my Father. That's what he said. Now, remember... This is, we're still in the same up this discourse where Jesus is trying to comfort them, right? Because they've been given some really bad news and, um, and he's said, let not your heart be troubled, um, because he knows they're troubled. And so when you hear, I mean, the fact that Jesus is going away, okay, there is, there is no, to the disciples, there is no news that is more troubling than that. Okay, that is the, 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 the most troubling thing was the fact that Jesus was leaving. But yet he says uh, in uh, we know from back or from over in uh, chapter sixteen, he says it's to your advantage that I go. Didn't he, he says that uh, a little bit later in our study? To it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Well, we know we know why, right? Because Pentecost couldn't happen until Christ has ascended back to the Father. It was, it was only with his leaving that the Spirit could come and be given to the entire church. And so, um, now, it, at the time, okay, here in the upper room, the disciples really didn't understand what he was trying to say here. But we can gather by what we know in some of the other Gospels that, that they did eventually understand what he was talking about. If we jump over to Luke uh, chapter 24, this is the account when they watch Jesus ascend back. He says after, uh, what does Luke uh, 24 tell us? He says after they watched Jesus ascend, they did what? They returned to the city rejoicing is what it says. But Luke tells us they watched Jesus ascend. They returned to the city rejoicing. Why? Remember that Jesus going away was the worst thing that they could think about. Well, sometime between where we are today and when he ascended, they, they understood what Jesus was talking about. It's good that I go. And so they could rejoice. And know, okay, 
Don't really understand it, but Jesus says it's good. So I can rejoice in that, right? So Jesus went on to say in verses uh, 13 and 14. He says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, um, there are those in the church. Uh, Maybe you've met someone like this, uh, but there are those in the church in the modern age in this time who would take this statement as an absolute statement from Jesus. They'll say things like, uh, or they believe things like that the, the Christian may ask for anything they want as long as they finish their prayer with in Jesus' name. Because Jesus says what? If you ask it in my name, I will do it. So I can ask anything I want as long as I ask it in Jesus' name, then it's going to happen. Well, that interpretation of this verse is the basis for what? What is the one of the, the you, you've heard this in the modern age, This, this uh, it's not a prosperity gospel. We call it this movement. We call it the, the name it and claim it, right? Have you heard that? There are some, there are a lot of television preachers, right, who make a lot of money off name it and claim it gospel, right? This is the kind of stuff that they believe. And they do a lot of show and they get a lot of attention and they get a lot of viewers and they get a lot of donations, right? Uh, and they make a lot of money because of this interpretation, this name it and claim it, uh, move it. There's a there's a, another similar verse, right, uh, in the Gospels that's also misinterpreted, just like this one, Matthew 18, 19. Jesus said, again, I say to you, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them and by my Father in heaven. Man, well, that's good news, right? That's great. All I got to do is find at least one more believer who agrees with me, um, will ask for it, or ask God for it, and it's done. Man. What do you want to ask for, Steve? Let's, what do you want to agree on? What can we ask for? And it's going to be done. How about, how about can, we, can we agree that uh, cancer needs to end? Well, if you and I agree, all we got to do is ask God, and it's going to be done. That would be a miracle. That would be a miracle. According to their, and, and I'm not trying to make light of it, but according to their interpretation, that's, it's, it's as simple as that. Let's go find someone else to agree, and it's going to be done. Let's pray about it in Jesus' name. Well, obviously, what Jesus is saying here is not that simple. Obviously, that is not the right interpretation. These statements of Jesus must be understood in the context of all that the Lord says about prayer. The Lord has a lot to say about prayer, right? Uh, Dr. Sproul says, He never gave His people a blank check with the promise, anything you ask for that I will do. Jesus has never done that. He's never given a blank check. Now, What's behind this statement from Jesus? What's the assumption behind the verse? The assumption is this, and we can um, kind of, this is just, we're kind of rewording, but uh, making saying it a little bit differently. It's Jesus is saying this, I will do for you anything that you ask that is within the parameters of what is legitimate according to my teaching. Do you see what, you see what's behind that? That's different, isn't it? It's a different understanding besides, well, whatever you ask, then I'll do for you. What's behind it? And again, it's, we, have, we know what's behind it by looking at the greater context of the Lord's teaching on prayer. I, I will do anything you ask 
as long as it was in the parameters of what is legitimate, according to my teaching, according to the Word. I found this in uh, MacArthur's study Bible. It means this. He says there's three things really when you think about prayer. Uh, number one, uh, the believer's prayer should be done for his purposes and his kingdom, and not selfish reasons. Uh, number two, the believer's prayer should be on the basis of his, his merits, Jesus' merits, and not any personal merit or worthiness. And number three, the believer's prayer should be in the pursuit of his glory, Jesus' glory alone. Now, with those three things characterize your prayer, that's the heart of what Jesus is talking about, right? He said, I want you, I want you to be praying in me. I want you to be praying for my ministry, my work to be done in the world. You see the difference? It's, it's not a, well, Matthew, what do you want? What can I do for you today? I'm a divine vending machine. You know, it's, 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 what, what is, what does needs to happen in the world? What happens needs to happen in the church, right? What, these things, and that's the kind of things that the believers should be praying about, right? I mean, in, in this context, right? But there's other things. Obviously, we lift our cares, our concerns. We, we definitely do that as a matter of prayer. But when you talk about asking Jesus for things, these are some things that should characterize a believer's prayer. His kingdom. Yes, yes, ma'am. This came uh, from the MacArthur Study Bible. So if anybody's got a MacArthur Study Bible, it's in the notes here on this verse, this commentary. It means, number one, that the believer's prayer should be for his purposes, that's Jesus' purposes, and kingdom, and not for selfish reasons. Number two, the believer's prayer should be on the basis of, again, Jesus' merits and not any personal merit or worthiness. Number three, the believer's prayer should be in pursuit of his glory alone, his kingdom, for the sake of his kingdom. Now, we can we say this because, and, and Sproul mentioned in his commentary, he says the very next verse supports this view. Is how when we have, how we read these things because Jesus says in verse fifteen, "If you love me, keep my commandments." Short and simple, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, there are a couple different ways to read this verse. Uh, some will read it this way: If you love me, then you are obligated to keep my commandments. Uh, that is, your love is shown by obedience. Now others will read it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, in, in this view, in the second view, the obedience, okay, obeying, keeping the commandments is a, is, is a certain inevitable consequence of love for Christ. Now, the second view is what the reformers held to. Okay, it's, it's, you read it this way. If you love me, you will, you will keep my commandments. Again, that obedience is a certain inevitable consequence of our love for Christ. The, again, the reformers held to this view. That is uh, why uh, they believed that our justification is not based on our works, right? I agree with that. It's not, we're not justified before God based on our works, but true justification always generates a response of obedience. Right? That is, that's the truth. That is the gospel. Right? That is, that is the truth as found in the scripture. We're not saved by our works. 
But our justification always generates the response of obedience. When God saves you, you want to obey Him. That's, we can say that, right? When you love Christ for, it, because He saved you, then you want to obey. It's not done... Uh, certainly there's a duty, a duty to obey, but it's, 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 it's done out of a love for Him. You want to obey Him. You want to please Him because of what He has done for you. If we love Him, then we will obey Him. That's what our takeaway from this. And, and we can look at the, the converse of this, right? What's the converse? If we don't obey Him, then um, that is very good indicator, right? Uh, that no matter what we say, there is no love for Christ in us. You can say one thing with your mouth, right? I love Jesus. But if your life is in constant disobedience to Him. Hmm. What we know about genuine love for Christ manifests itself in obedience to His commandments. And we can think, when we, when we think about His commandments, that's, that's, that's obviously, I mean, it's the Ten Commandments, but it's everything else that Jesus has prescribed uh, in His own words and that we find in the Bible. The one, what, when you think about loving Christ, uh, the one who loves Christ, and we, we hit on this in the elements of, of the prayer that we got from, I got from the MacArthur Study Bible. The one who loves Christ denies his own interest. Right? His prayers are not primarily about me. They're not selfish in a sense. They deny his own interest for, for what? For the sake of Christ. That's what we're praying about. Right? It's for the sake of him. Um, the, the, this kind of love that we're talking about. This is not a, an emotional love. This is not a... Um, you know, childlike uh, kind of silliness. This is this is real love uh, for Christ. But this kind of love rules out treating Jesus like a divine vending machine, right? We just throw up a prayer and ask Him what we want and expect Him to deliver. Well, that's not why Jesus is there. That's not why we pray to Him. And, and true love uh, rules that out. Jason, yes, sir. what you just said triggered something in my mind. Uh, most of you know Dr. Igo Hodges. Mm-hmm. And he would always end his prayers for Christ's sake. For Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. I heard him pray, man. Yep. For Jesus' sake. He did. Right? For the sake of his kingdom. Now, here in this next verse, Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit for the first time. Verses 16 and 17. It says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world can, cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Now, the Greek word translated here, Helper, is parakletos which is where we get our word paraclete. The English word paraclete. Y'all have heard this word before. It's, uh, this word's translated in several different ways in the Bible. Some would say advocate. Some would say comforter. Some say counselor here. Uh, advocate is a good idea of what a paraclete is. Uh, in, in antiquity, uh, a paraclete was an attorney. Uh, basically a defense attorney. And so if you have problems with the law, you would call your paraclete. 
Uh, the prefix para means to come alongside or beside, right? And the verb kletos means to call. So a paraclete is what? Someone you call to come alongside you and help in your defense. Now, the word the comforter, which is used in the King James, King James Version, is a little bit misleading. Does anybody have a, a translation that says comforter? Okay. It's, it's a little bit misleading in our day. Um, yes, the Holy Spirit does comfort and console. Absolutely. In times of adversity. But, but the King James was written in a time when the English language was more connected to its Latin roots. And so the word comfort came from two Latin words uh, that meant with strength. So, so the comfort, comforter was someone who came to strengthen you. Okay, it, it, it wasn't the one who came along to wipe away your tears after the battle. It was the one who came to strengthen you before the battle. So you see the importance there. And that, that's a good understanding, right? <clears throat> Counselor can also be a little bit misleading because when we hear it, what do we think about? We tend to think about maybe a school guidance counselor or a psychological therapist, right? It's kind of what we think about, right? However, the paraclete is more like an advocate. And so when you say counselor, think more about a counselor in a courtroom. Okay, someone who could defend your case. Dr. Sproul said, uh, he said, I used to play a little game at this point. When we talk about the spirit and the paraclete. I play a little game with his seminary students. And he says, in the New Testament, who is the paraclete? Well, they it all raised their hand, right? Oh, that's easy. Oh, that's easy. The paraclete's the Holy Spirit. Okay, and, and he would add, okay, he'd say, well, that's, he says, my question required a little bit of a technical answer. He says, that's right, and then it's, in one sense, it's not right. It is true that the Holy Spirit is a paraclete. But notice that Jesus did not call him the paraclete. Jesus called the Holy Spirit another paraclete. So, if the Holy Spirit is another, then there has to be a paraclete prior to. Right? So who is that? Well, I, didn't, I heard it. Jesus himself. Jesus himself. First, John 2, 1 gives us the answer. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ himself is our advocate, isn't he? He's our comforter. He's our counselor. He's our helper. That's the reason that Christ spoke of the Holy Spirit as another helper. Because the first one is standing right before him. The first paraclete. He's right there in their midst. Jesus was saying, I'm not going to leave you helpless. Yes, I am going. But I'm praying that the Father is going to send you one who is going to, is going to send him with strength to help you. So that when you are called before magistrates, when you're dragged into the streets, when death is being threatened upon you, guess what? He's going to help you stand. Because He's going to be there with you. I won't be here. I'm going to be gone. But He's going to be with you. And He's going to help you stand by the power of God. You see that strength? He's strengthening the believer. Not after the battle. Not wiping away tears. He's strengthening the believer before the battle. Jesus used a wonderful title for the Spirit. He called him the Spirit of Truth. 
This is the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired or superintended the writing of the the Bible. It is the Holy Spirit who illumines the Bible. It is the Holy Spirit who applies the truth of the Word of God with power. It It is the Holy Spirit who exposes falsehood, exposes lies. He's the Spirit of truth. Jesus uh, also mentions the world here, right? He mentioned uh, that is those who were not believers. And what does it say about them? He says they cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Because they did not see him or know him. Jesus said the disciples do know him, right? Because he dwells inside them. Now the context here is uh, this indwelling of the Holy is saving knowledge. And because the Spirit has given that saving knowledge to all who are born again. But this, when Jesus says, but you know Him, comma, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, this indicates, okay, from, this is Jesus' own words, this is an indication that there is some distinction between the ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers before Pentecost and after Pentecost. Okay, and, 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 and okay, that was, and you know this by just your study of the New Testament, right? You know that there was a huge difference. Okay, there was, in, in, in the life of a believer, because these, these men had the Spirit with them. They were saved, right? But it was not in the same way. Okay, the Spirit was given in greater what uh, was just poured out on the church at Pentecost. It was a, it was a, it was a distinction. We can clearly see that. Um, can I explain it all? No, I cannot explain that. But it, it, we do. These words by Jesus do indicate some distinction. The, it's clear that the Holy Spirit has been with all who have ever believed throughout redemptive history, right? Because the Holy Spirit is a source of faith, of truth, and of life. And what Jesus is saying is something new is coming. Something new is coming in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we kind of come down to the end of these verses, there's a, uh, Dr. Sproul mentioned this, we're almost out of time, we're a minute here, so I'll make it quick. This, why is Jesus uh, communicating this? Again, he wants them to be ready. He wants them to know what's coming. So there's this theory uh, that, that as to why Jesus gives so much attention to the Holy Spirit here in the upper room discourse. And the theory holds that what happened here was was some kind of dynastic... Uh, uh, dynastic, I can't say it. Dynasty, okay? Dynastic, I think is... Yeah, uh, succession, celebration. Dynastic succession. Ooh, got a, that's a tongue twister right there. Now... Dynasties, right? The concept of dynasties we know is found uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we see the patriarchal blessings that are handed down from father to son. Uh, we saw Moses pass uh, the leadership of Israel uh, and his authority to Joshua. And we know that kings routinely pass their crowns to their sons. And so we see this dynasty, this, this sharing, this passing on, right? And so here in a, in a similar way, and it's not far-fetched, right? There's a theory, but... But here in a similar way, Jesus is about to leave. It's, it's changing. And so he's going to turn the leadership of his church to the Holy Spirit. He's going to hand it over. He's leaving. Jesus is still king of the church, right? But, but he's going to hand this earthly ministry here at the church over to the Holy Spirit. 
And so, and, and then he would now be the paraclete. So that's it's a theory, but it's, it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's not far-fetched or anything. It's a way of handing things off to the Holy Spirit. Our bell has rung. Does anybody have any questions? I know it's kind of, we're probably out of time, but anything? Okay, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Father, we pray that <clears throat> that uh, the study would be helpful. Father, we pray that you would uh, use your word uh, to uh, open our eyes, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to help us understand truth, Father, to apply it all for the sake of your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.